Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Richheimer, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to Pain Know-How, the official podcast of the online pain medicine program at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California. I'm the program director. This podcast is dedicated to sharing evidence-based information to enhance the practice of any clinician that treats patients that experience pain. All our speakers are experts in their fields and they will provide listeners with the most up-to-date information. Thank you for listening. Now let's go to today's episode. Hi, I'm Steve Richheimer and I am the Chief of Pain Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. And we're joined today by Dr. Faye Weinstein who is the Chief of Pain Psychology at the Keck School of Medicine, and by Dr. Glenn Clark, who is the Chief of the Pain Program, the Oral Facial Pain Program at the Ostro Dental School at USC. First, let's do a little discussion of you know, why you might want to and might not want to provide telehealth. Uh, certainly in today's world, uh, a lot of patients are reluctant to come in and expose themselves in outside environments, and they are probably wise that way. And we should be cautious about exposing ourselves and our staff. So telehealth offers a much safer option. Uh, I've been telling my patients that I actually expect to continue to telehealth for the rest of my career that uh, it is much more convenient for, for patients. Uh, frankly, it's more convenient for the clinician. And there are times that it won't be appropriate, but there are many times that it is appropriate. In addition, it gives us the, the opportunity to provide services outside of our usual um, geographic limits. Uh, so we can broaden the scope of our practice. We might be able to reach into underserved, under-resourced areas and provide services that uh, normally are not so accessible uh, to folks in these more distant or more rural areas or underserved areas. And finally, I think uh, I've talked to several clinicians now and they all are saying the same thing, that the no-show rate is greatly reduced. Uh, I think that's a matter of the convenience for the patient. And uh, the way we set it up in our practice is we call the patient uh, at the time of their appointment, uh, make sure that they're ready to receive a link, that they have a, you know, a laptop open running or a computer open running with a, a camera. And so they're all primed and ready to go. Uh, and I think that does a lot to reduce the no-show rate. So what are some of the negatives that you have to be aware of? Um, one is you're very limited in what you can do in a physical examination. Uh, now, you are limited, but it's not like you can't do anything. And I think uh, Dr. Clark in his presentation is gonna give you some idea of how much you really can do that you may not have thought about. Uh, it also limits, but again, does not eliminate 
our ability to do informal observations. Um, when I sit in my clinic uh, with a patient, uh, you know, I'm paying attention to their posture, how they walk in and out of a room, how they climb on and off a table, uh, and other things like how they interact with other people in the room, uh, all kinds of things that may be a little harder to pick up in a telehealth setting. But again, I would say not impossible, just more difficult. Of course, you're not able to do procedures uh, and other you know, physical activities such as uh, you know, drawing labs, getting imaging studies. Doesn't mean you can't order these things and have a patient go someplace to get them done. But if your practice was a practice that would do these things on site at the time, that's not possible with telehealth. Then uh, another question is, is it more difficult to establish rapport with the patient? And I think Dr. Weinstein may be addressing this a little bit more. Um, and of course there's, in her practice as a clinical psychologist, the, the communication channels are a little bit different than they may be in a 15 minute visit with a physician or with a dentist. Um, but nevertheless, I think we should be alert to the issue um, that the rapport may be a little different with telehealth than it is in person. You should be aware that in the telehealth and telemedicine world, there are two different kinds that people are referring to. One is video enabled, and the other is audio only or telephone. The bigger picture is at first Medicare, prior to COVID, Medicare was not paying for telehealth in, in nearly the same uh, parity, if you will, within office visits. They changed that in response to the COVID crisis and initially said they would pay uh, video enabled on a uh, parity basis within the office, and then subsequently said they would do telephone also on parity. I think most of us suspect that telephone or audio only is very short term, um, but we're hoping that the video enabled telehealth will remain on a parity or at least close to parity level with reimbursements for in-office visits. When you do a, a visit, you have to document the visit like you would for an in-office visit. So you need to establish what the complaints of the patient are, what exam elements you were able to do, what your treatment plan is, all of that needs to be there just like any other visit. In addition, you need to clearly state it was telehealth, and it was video enabled or audio only. Telephone um, or audio only is less desirable than the video enabled. Your ability to observe the patient is greatly reduced even further. Um, your ability to informally assess the patient, look at all those kinds of things I was mentioning before, how they move around, their facial expressions, uh, you know, are they are they in withdrawal and sweating and shaking or, you know, whatever the issue might be, much harder to, to get clues about it if you're limited to audio only. Also, the 
Billing is different for audio only. Uh, so right now I'm talking about medical. Again, we're allowed to use, for video enabled, we're allowed to use the exact same codes that we would use for an in-office visit. But that's not true for audio only. For audio only, it is time-based billing. Okay, so uh, I thought I would share with you some of the different platforms that are available for telemedicine. Uh, Zoom has a HIPAA compliant version, which is what we use in our office. InTouch Health has versions that are actually compatible with Cerner. Um, and I think they have a version that's compatible with Epic. Uh, we use Cerner, so I'm not positive about that. Um, Skype has now a HIPAA compliant version called Simple Visit. There's a free um, program available on Doximity, a, a healthcare provider website. Doximity, there, theirs is called Doximity Dialer. Doxy.me has a free version, plus you can buy added, added um, layers or tiers um, to get additional uh, services. So that's just an idea or a sample of some of the common ones. So I'm going to now turn over uh, the presentation to Dr. Faye Weinstein, uh, Chief of Pain Psychology at USC. So I'm a psychologist at the Pain Center, and the patients I see all have chronic pain. And I think my impressions of telehealth might be slightly different from Dr. Richheimer's. Many of the patients that we see don't have great access to technology. Uh, they still have dumb phones or they don't have enough bandwidth to support um, being able to uh, be seen clearly or heard clearly on the screen. It's gonna make it hard to really see what's going on with them. And if they're sounding like a chipmunk, it's really gonna be difficult um, for the psychotherapist to understand what they're saying. And that creates a strain for the therapist and also for the patient. I haven't weighed in yet on cancellations and no-shows. I've, I've seen that patients still cancel and no-show at the same rate. Maybe it's just uh, different for psychotherapy. And it's usually because when they're having a really bad pain flare day, they're not even making it out of bed to the computer. Uh, privacy is definitely an issue that I'm concerned with. Um, I make an effort with uh, these telehealth sessions to define to the patient that this is a formal psychotherapy session. Um, we need to make sure there's privacy. And that means that you have to make sure that nobody is coming into the room. And if there is, please let me know so that I don't inadvertently say something that you don't want revealed. Um, privacy, though, is a term that you really have to make sure the patient understands where you're coming from. Um, otherwise, you can get a surprise and suddenly realize there's several people coming through the room. Uh, getting forms back from patients um, was something that my staff helped me with. Um, finally, we settled on just using a simple screener form rather than the other forms that we use to um, assess different possible psychological conditions. A basic, simple word form didn't have to worry about a fillable PDF that patients couldn't figure out. Uh, for me, the jury's still out on my comfort level with seeing new patients for their visit in telehealth for, for several reasons. As a psychotherapist, what we've come to rely on is the setting, an intentional space that we can control with shared physical proximity. And this is something that's a very powerful tool in psychology 
to make the client feel safe and cared for, build the alliance, which is a driver of psychological uh, therapy outcomes, uh, help clients regulate and give them an opportunity to um, identify and experience uh, different strong emotions. In addition, many times therapy is the place for patients to vent and to practice difficult communications that they might want to have with a significant other or a family member, or a lot of times the physician. What I have learned is that we can actually use telehealth to create this kind of setting. And I have learned that I have to be uh, very specific in what's needed. Um, so I inform the patients that they can't be holding the phone in their hands. You know, it can't be going all over the place. I want to see their whole face and as much of their body as possible. And I don't want the phone moving all over the place either. Um, and I'll go through that with the patient. Please place your phone on a stable surface. Please make sure that you can hear me. Can you see me? And by this give and take, um, seeing how they respond to instructions and can carry them out, that actually helps me with the setting so that I can um, identify and influence the patient's receptivity to my physical and voice-related cues. And I can identify and influence their receptivity receptivity to general instructions, because if they can do this basic thing, it's more likely that they're going to be receptive to treatment-related instructions and suggestions and interpretations. My job also is to deal with my environment, so I do spend some time staring at that little box to make sure I'm not uh, too backlit, that if I'm going to go into the patient's electronic medical record and my eyes are no longer going to be looking into the camera, that I let the patients know that. I try to make sure to manage noise because there's nothing worse for a patient in distress who may be talking about how they can't talk about pain at home with their family because their concerns always get drowned out. And then suddenly the leaf blower goes off, right? That's just really bad. One of the things that has been a challenge is when a patient is upset, being able to comfort them because I'm not going to be able to use body cues and physical proximity in the same way. Leaning towards the camera, being more aware of my facial expressions in ways that I offer comfort. And even where my hands are because I may be trying to offer comfort or demonstrate caring, but if my hands aren't in the visual field, then that's going to be an issue. Um, in psychotherapy, oftentimes for dealing with health-related um, mind-body issues, the psychotherapist use, is used to using their body and observing the patient's whole body for synchrony and co-regulation. And we don't have the ability to use that tool as much when we have a very limited field. If we can get a, an image of the patient up on the screen, that's very clear, that's very helpful because we'll use observing patients as a way to get information and data uh, to make our diagnoses and to inform us about what's going on with the patient and make treatment decisions. And by seeing the, how their muscles move around their eyes, their mouth, clenching jaws, I can get an idea more of the impact of their cognitive responses. But if we get a little bit more of the patient, that can be helpful. So sometimes getting the patient to move their camera away so it's more than just their face. 
um, that can be very helpful. I can tell things about the patient. Are they depressed and they haven't been showering? Are there restrictions in their upper body because of their pain or their guarding behaviors? I need to be able to observe these in the pain psychology setting in order to uh, identify those for the patient. So for instance, every time they talk about a certain topic, do they bring their shoulders up, right? Do they hold their breath? I need to identify those emotional, physical responses to identify what those linkages are, give the patient feedback on that, come up with treatments and strategies to address that if that is compromising their underlying medical condition, and also be able to observe what the outcome of treatment is. So I need to see a little bit more than the face. Another change that I've had to become aware of is that I need to change some of my treatments and strategies. So in, for chronic pain patients, in the brick and mortar setting, I have biofeedback equipment that I could give real-time feedback to patients on things like muscle tension or galvanic skin response. That kind of equipment is too expensive for our patients at home. The only FDA-approved one is $300. Um, and even the smaller ones that you can get, just for instance, looking at peripheral temperature in the fingers, it's okay, but it doesn't give us quite the same information in real time. So I'm having to consider alternatives to that. Self-regulation training, for instance, showing a patient how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, that can be done on this type of platform. However, we have to once be aware of the visual field, right? So when I'm demonstrating that to the patient, I have to make sure there's more than just my face in the camera, that they might be able to see more of my body, that I might have to exaggerate my exhalation so they can hear them. And I have to be able to see what the patient is doing back. So for instance, if the patient is learning a progressive muscle relaxation technique, I need to see a little bit more about what they're doing. Should I be standing up? Should they be standing up? And when someone stands up, what's in my visual field then? I want to make sure it's something appropriate for the technique that I'm trying to give them. For pain psychology patients, though, we do a lot of exposure-based treatments, especially for patients who are experiencing a fear avoidance dynamic. And we also see patients who have been traumatized. So what is different is the limited visual field and that I can't tell as much by that field even if I'm seeing more of their body, all of the different things they might be doing that cues me that they are in distress. Maybe they're wringing their hands, right? But I can't see that if their hands are in their lap. What are safety behaviors in their environment that they can rely on if they need to reorient themselves to time and place? That's something I have to go over with them because I don't know what their environment is that they are looking at. I can only see what's behind them. And accessing safety resources is quite different because the patient is in their own home. So it's a little different in the, than in the clinic where I have the front uh, desk staff as backup or um, my psychology fellow as backup. This is just kind of me and the, and the patient. One of the things that, we, that happens a lot in psychotherapy is we try to bring up the patient's level of distress um, and that's for various exposure-based treatments and also to give them a place to experience distress and associate that with feelings and thoughts and behaviors and physical sensations. And that's something we that I have to have a lot of control of. And that's, I've really had to modify what I do to account for this visual field as well as all the technological glitches. 
we have to have a plan in case the patient is saying, and you know what, the most important thing is that, right, and suddenly they're gone. This visual field also creates some issues for doing specific techniques like uh, EMDR and hypnosis, having to be aware of what the patient can see that you're doing and having a limited ability to really be able to read all of what the patient is going through with their body. So I've had to make some modifications uh, for that purpose too. However, um, with that, it has definitely been a challenge and I, I don't know if uh, I'm gonna wanna be doing telehealth forever. I'm looking forward to having the ability to return to the office and have patients return. But at this point, I am trooping onward. Um, if people would like some things to read, there's some, um, these are new articles that came out in um, Journal of Psychotherapy and Integration um, about uh, telehealth and psychotherapy. Great. Thank you, uh, Dr. Weinstein. And now we will turn it over to Dr. Glenn Clark, the uh, chief of the oral facial pain program at the Austro School of Dentistry at USC. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for attending, and hopefully you're getting something of value out of this. Um, I decided I would look at the exam. What can you do, at least in the oral facial region? I'm not looking at feet and arms and hands and, and body uh, mechanics, and where the barriers are to get more information. So I'm going to just quickly go through the 35... <laughs> Uh, of uh, a face-to-face -face exam that can be performed with reasonable accuracy during a teleconsult. And uh, so there's obviously some that you can, some that you may be able to, and some that you certainly can't. Obviously, where does it hurt? On a pain map. Patient tells you, you can draw it. That's pretty simple. And it's an important piece of information for oral facial pain TMJ problems. Um, certainly ambulation and patient difficulty. And I'm not watching the patients walk in the room, but I can ask them if they're, you know, having an assisted device to move around, et cetera. Uh, you may not see it in their face, but you can ask them and, and get pretty accurate information there. People don't lie about the fact they're in a wheelchair or not, or use a walker or not. At least I don't think they do. Uh, facial scars. You know, if somebody's had an injury to their face, uh, and it's visible, or, or there's a, some pathology on their skin that is important. You can see that. They have to get a little close to the camera maybe and turn off the uh, improved appearance mode, but uh, that can be done. You know, if you get really close, can you see conjunctiva? Can you see, uh, uh, you know, pupil dilation that are different. You can't do reactive with a light, but you can certainly see basic baseline dilation. You certainly can do neck motion. You know, I'm an old guy, so I don't have the motion that I used to have. And, uh, but you can assess this in patients if they're having neck pain. Um, you certainly can ask them about loss of sensation in their hands and arms because of cervical uh, nerve impingement. Uh, and that's all we do clinically is ask. Um, you might test, but, but mostly it's asking. Uh, for me, it's really important to see facial asymmetries because the jaw can you know, be really off-center and that can be disrupting their function of their jaw. And so I need to be able to see their full face and look at midlines. And, and I can do that fairly well, I think. Um, 
I can look at their hands for arthritic disease and, and uh, nail bed abnormalities and wrist and finger uh, nodules uh, without any problem, I think. Um, can I judge, <laughs> you know, their psychological state? I'll, well, I know if they can tell me a cogent story or not. I'm not doing a psychotherapy <laughs> assessment. I'm just saying, you know, do they know where they are and why they're here? And some of my dementia patients have no clue and can't figure it out, but, but most of the time you can assess this uh, as well as, as you can face-to-face. -face. Uh, can you detect anxiety and depression? Maybe not, not very well, but you can ask. And patients usually will tell you if they're extreme, if they trust you, uh, if they're extremely distressed or anxiety-prone. Anxiety um, so there's, you know, you can see ptosis if there's some potential uh, neurologic anomaly or maybe drug-induced anomaly. Uh, certainly you can see facial motor, you know, do they have a Bell's palsy on one side? You can see that if you get them pretty close to the camera. Um, and you can see, you know, cranial nerve 12, uh, eh, if the tongue out straight or not. All those are visible. The ones that are less visible, it, it, accurate, I think you have to do something different. You know, normally we measure mouth opening. You know, is their jaw joint locked? Do they have a contracture? Do they have adhesions? Uh, and we use a ruler, but you can really use your fingers as the ruler. Three fingers, four fingers, oh, only two. Your fingers have a pretty, near, a pretty consistent width to them. You know, some people have fat fingers, they're real thin, but but uh, you can easily assess their range of motion, I think, within a reasonable level. You can also um, see their side-to-side -side motion if you get real close and you can see their teeth. Some people can't pull their lips back far enough to do that, so I'm not sure side-to-side -side is as easy as uh, mouth opening. Um, you can maybe, maybe get them to self-palpate. Is this sore when you press on it with reasonable pressure? is this sore up here, you know, and walk them through the process and get some information. You know, we obviously have to test if the information you get on a telehealth with self-palpation is equivalent to what you get when you physically examine them. We'd have to do a set of patients where we did both, one after another, and then we could assess that. Uh, neck, you know, less Less able, you can certainly do trapezius and sternocleidomastoid maybe, as long as they don't pinch their carotid. Um, and certainly you can palpate the TMJ and see if it's really, really tender to pressure and compare one side to the other. Um, joint sounds. Now we can't use a stethoscope obviously, although they make a, uh, some 12 year old kid made a, uh, a, a add-on device that has a little diaphragm system and you can use it as a stethoscope and see the sound on your phone. So there's technology out there that might work in some situations, but uh, the patients with joint noises, they can feel it. They can feel if it's crunchy or clicking. And so you have to rely on self-exam for joint noises. Uh, and you certainly can see the teeth. And if you get them close enough to the camera uh, to see if they're you know, wearing everything out and they're just really heavy uh, clinchers. It's not as good as a mirror and reflected light, obviously, but, but it can be done. So the question is, will the telehealth documentation that you do perform stand up to a Medicare audit? Maybe, 
maybe not. We'll find out. We hope it will. Um, and I, you know, will they pay? And until we get some data on payment and we get some data on uh, audits, we don't know the answer to this question. Uh, thank you, Dr. Clark and Dr. Weinstein. Uh, Dr. Padilla is with us today. Padilla, uh, yeah, we have some questions. We have some questions that people have been asking. So let me bring some of those questions to you. How long is a typical telehealth session? Well, uh, so I'll start on, on my side and let the others address it. But uh, it's extremely similar to an in-office visit. Uh, and it really should be because you're you're billing it as something that is meant to be equivalent. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, if you're going to do something in an in-office visit that's very procedural, you're not going to be able to do that uh, in telehealth. But a, a standard assessment, getting a, getting a history, getting a, a physical observations and a treatment plan, it should be about the same. Um, I've actually, uh, so my, my visit lengths are the same except for a new patient. I've added on um, some time uh, because just getting, helping them set up the, uh, their system so that I can see them and hear them. And so a lot of time for that. Um, often new patients are historically a little late and frazzled, so I want to allow extra time for that too. So instead of a 60-minute session, I've allowed for 90 minutes. We've decided because we're doing a cash service, because we can't bill insurance, uh, we're going to do 20-minute sessions and charge an appropriate fee for a 20-minute session. What's your usual when it's not telehealth? Um, our usual for a new patient is one hour, and our follow-up is 20 minutes. So we're going to be doing a new patient in 20 minutes. Now, to achieve that, we're going to have to limit them to one chief complaint. They can't come in with, it's everywhere it hurts, and, and I have 27 people I've seen in the past. We're going to have to say, oh, no, we have to focus. You can have multiple visits if you need to, but 20 minutes is our time frame, and we're going to focus on one problem. We're going to try to give you some advice on how to deal with that. The biggest issue is the pre-encounter stuff, getting them to fill out the questionnaires and sign the consent forms with DocuSign and, and making, finding the ones that are HIPAA compliant. Uh, there are a lot of technical barriers that we have in the university that you may not have in a private office. Mm -hmm. Next question is, um, are you targeting your telehealth for new patients or you are, always, you are also scheduling follow-up appointments? I guess I'll start. Uh, we're definitely doing both. Um, and again, we're seeing it. Uh, I, I'm seeing all my patients by telehealth as the default and only bringing them in if there's a reason to, that I have to physically examine something or I have to do a procedure. Uh, otherwise, telehealth is our default. Here is an interesting one. Are you recording the sessions? If so, where do you keep the recordings? I am not recording any of my sessions um, because uh, we can't do that without the patient's consent. So I don't know if anybody else is recording. No. So we're not recording either. It's occurred to me that there might be special occasions when I might want to document something. Uh, and then I would talk to the patient to get their permission before we did it. Uh, 
our standard does not. I have a good question here. Can doctors treat patients across state lines? Ah, <laughs> that is a good question that I have actually uh, talked to our administration about. And the answer is it varies case by case. You have to know which state uh, and you have to have a advisor in the system that can look that up for you and tell you uh, if it is feasible. So in a big institution, you know, like ours, there are people who help us with that. Uh, and some states are feasible, some states are not. Uh, and some of the states that are feasible are only feasible on an emergency basis uh, in the current climate. Uh, and they may not be, uh, that may not be possible in the future. So I guess it summarizes as caution and have people to turn to who can look it up for you. Dr. Bichheimer, any final remarks? No, oh, hopefully this was helpful to people. I think it's a really important area because I think telehealth is in some form going to be here to stay. Uh, and, you know, patients in medical settings are, I think, going to really demand it and want it. Uh, in the, you know, psychotherapy world, it's clearly a little bit different. And in the dental world, there may be uh many more occasions where it's just not going to be you know physically appropriate but in some form i think it's here to stay and hopefully this will this today's session was helpful to get people on board we hope you have enjoyed this episode of pain know-how if you want more information about our online programs please visit our website at painmed.usc edu or send an email to us at painmed at usc.edu. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.